presuppositions. It's cool because Will Dallery, that guy right back there, he was my intern at RUF Vanderbilt where I'm a campus minister my first year. So that's so cool. Uh, that is awesome. So, uh, all right. Um, I, I guess we'll just start. Let me just start by praying. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you, would you, would you meet with us here by your spirit and encourage these uh, servants of yours and help me teach and be clear um, and give us a uh, a clarity about what philosophy ministry is because we want, we want to see students reached for Christ and equipped to serve. That's what we want. And so would you help that, that happen through these next two hours um, so that we'd be even better equipped to do ministry? So I just ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. My name, like I said, Richie Sessions. I am an RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt University. I have been there, this is my fourth year. Before that, I was a pastor in Memphis, and then I was a pastor in Cleveland, Mississippi, which is in the Delta, which is the most southern place on earth uh, in Mississippi. Uh, I'm originally from Little Rock, Arkansas. A um, little bit about me. I'm married to Laura. Uh, she, we met in college at Baylor University. Sick of bears. Uh, that, was, that was weird. I just did. Um, <laughs> And we met at Baylor and um, been married 18 years. We have a 17-year-old daughter, a 12, a 14-year-old son, and a 12-year-old daughter. And um, yeah, we live in Franklin, Tennessee. And so I'm glad to be here. Um, this is my goal with you guys. I want my, my presupposition. We're talking about presuppositions. <laughs> like after lunch, we're talking talk about presuppositions, okay? My my goal with y'all is to um, have this be clear and helpful because I've been through this material a, like a bunch as an RUF campus minister, and I've, I mean I went to seminary for four years, and I've done a lot of stuff, but like it was like it's confusing. And so, have y'all done any POM yet? Any philosophy ministry stuff yet? Have y'all done some of that? Okay. Is it kind of, like, you know it's good, and you feel like you're, this is the way I always felt, like, I, I feel like I'm supposed to know it, and like, oh, like, yeah, mmm, yeah. But, but and, and it's good content, but sometimes you go, like, I don't, I don't know how it all fits. And so, my goal here is for you to go, ah, I, I, just a little bit, if, if anything, like, I think I understand what the philosophy, min, min, philosophy, I can't even say it. If I can understand what the philosophy of ministry is and how it pertains to my ministry, and in particular, bonus, how the presuppositions could liberate me in ministry. That's pretty attractive, isn't it? That sounds good. The presuppositions are the most liberating part of the philosophy of ministry. It can liberate you. I mean, truly. I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic, and I am hyperbolic, but I'm not being hyperbolic now. Hey, could, hey, could we get the tree up there? There you go. Can y'all see the tree? 
Oh, wow, those TVs, that's new this year, isn't it? With the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's awesome. Okay, so look at the tree. Look at the tree for a second. Just take a, take a look at it. We got, got all these words up there. There's some words that you recognize. Um, because we're going to go back to that tree. We're going to keep that graphic up. Uh, and my goal is for you to think, kind of go, oh, I kind of understand what that is. And then those things called presupposition, which are underneath all that. Um, okay. Here's what I want you to do. Here's an exercise before we begin. On a, on a piece of paper or on a doc document, e-paper, would you write down your, your biggest ministry issues right now? Right now, like your biggest ministry issues right now. Your, big, your questions, your problems from the past year, the parent and or student that makes you throw up in your mouth. Um, like the one that makes you anxious is what I mean by that. Um, where, what are you angry, frustrated, worried about? Like where is the funk in your ministry right now? Like, this is what RYM is. Like where... where What are you baffled about, not know about, worried about? Just write that stuff down. It'll take a few minutes to do that. Maybe you're like, I don't know if I need to be in ministry. <laughs> I don't know if I'm, what is ministry? <laughs> All that stuff. As you are finishing that up, thanks for doing that, by the way. As you are finishing that up, one of, before we as we're talking about the, the philosophy of ministry, one of the biggest struggles in ministry for me, like I said, I, I was an ordained. I was ordained in two thousand and four. Um, is just how nebulous. You know what I mean by nebulous? Rant, like just amorphous ministry feels like even sometimes random like you're sometimes I was like I'm just spending all my time doing this thing and it's like I don't think anybody wants me to do this but it's like I'm doing this it just feels so huge and there's a lot of guilt that I felt like, am I doing enough? Like, you kind of don't know if you're doing enough. I remember wanting to, like, I loved going home and, like, bathing my kids because it was finished. Because, like, ministry's never finished. I was jealous of the friends who were like, I finished this project. I don't, like, very rarely in ministry do you feel like something is, like, this thing, like, you started it and finished it. Or, like, this, there's just, it's amorphous, it's nebulous. Um, that was that may be hard for you. That was really hard for me. That's like caused me a lot of anxiety. And it's so huge and cosmic. It's so easy to get lost reacting to these like strong personalities, right in the church. Or you look at what works at another church, and go like, well, that I'll just do that. And then you have people like, hey, well-meaning, well-meaning people that come and say like who had like a really good experience 20 years ago and this is what you need to do. Oh, and by the way, they're rich. 
right? And they have eight kids. And six of them in your youth group. And you only have 10 people in your youth group. And so that kind of, it, there's all this stuff. It just feels that way. Ministry is just so huge. Now, you know there's like the gospel and you love Jesus and you got into ministry because you love Jesus and you want to see people transformed by the gospel and you want to see people reached uh, for Christ and equipped to serve. You want all that stuff. But in the mix of it all, you've got like parent meetings and then you have like a ski trip that you've got to find a bus, right? And then you have like Wednesday night, you've got to prepare for that. And then you have like a pastor on staff that you're convinced hates your guts. And the worship is terrible in your youth group. Like they can't even, they, someone put the wrong capo and, uh, and they played and it was horrible. And it, all these different things are happening in the midst of it. Like how do I actually do ministry? Like that's what I want to, that's, that's what the philosophy ministry is for. What the philosophy ministry gives you is in the midst of the nebulous nature of ministry are tracks. Because ministry is constantly coming at you. It feels amorphous for all of us, even if you aren't talking about it. It feels nebulous. It's the craziest, weirdest job. Everyone thinks you have like a Harry Potter job, right? No one understands what we do, especially not youth pastors. And like, I'm a college minister. It's the same thing. They're like, yeah, cool. Um, no one understands what we do. And so what is philosophy ministry? Philosophy ministry is an operating system that helps you put one foot in front of the other, and go do ministry. Um, and so what we have, so like what we have is like theology over here, gospel, Tim Keller, right? Uh, fill in the blanks, whatever, whoever you like. I know we have different denominations, so like whatever, like theologian du jour uh, for you, you know, right? Whoever it is, Matt, Chandler and all these awesome people, Kevin DeYoung, whatever it is for you. You have theology and you're reading all this stuff. Calvin, maybe you're Puritans, right? You know, all those different things. You have theology you're learning. Maybe some of you went to seminary or got biblical education. You have all this content. And then you have my ministry, right? So what is the bridge between all the stuff you know and like and nerd out on and the podcast that you listen to and Wednesday night at 6 p.m.? Because it doesn't feel like there's often not a bridge between all the stuff that you're taught and then actually what you're doing. Because here's what I felt like in seminary. They gave me amazing, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, I'm so thankful I did, Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Systematic theology, it was, it was amazing the stuff that I got from those guys. But what I felt like, it was amazing content, justification, sanctification, glorification, union with Christ, Christology, all that stuff, ecclesiology, eschatology. I would come back, I would come at night and just tell my wife, she was so impressed. They're like, eschatology. <laughs> but like, but we learned all this information, right? But then when I started doing ministry, I was like, it was almost as though someone told me to build a house and they just showed me a forest. Does it, do you realize that that's like, what? Like, go build a house. Yes, there are, there are trees there. They, they are wood. And houses are made of wood, so go build a house. And I was like, but how, does, how, do, how do trees become lumber? 
That's P-O-M. Does that make sense? That's what a P-O-M is. P-O-M is with all the content, we, the stuff that we believe, and then actually doing ministry, that's a P-O-M. This one is the philosophy of ministry for Reformed Youth Movement and Reformed University Fellowship, right? This is, the, this is what it looks like to connect the theology, all the books you read and all the truth that you know, and then what you do on Wednesday and on Sunday nights. And whether or not you have like a, snup, a supper snack, or whether or not you go on a ski trip, how you make those decisions come from this. And so let's just, I want to just, we're just going to look at the tree. Let's just look at the tree. So, it's a pictorial representation. And this one's cuter than the RUF one. The RUF one is much more grim. It's more black and white. This is, this is animated and prettier. So we have scripture is the ground. Okay, so here's what that means. It means that everything we're about to say comes from the Bible. Okay? So POM, Palosi Ministry, is derived solely from the authority of Scripture itself. It's really, really important. And it will also be wildly confusing that we also have Scripture in the presuppositions and Scripture in the principles. If you're confused, so am I. Presuppositions, we'll talk about, that's what we're going to talk about today. Presuppositions are this. They are assumptions or prior held beliefs that inform how we do ministry. I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what that means. I'm going to unpack that. But they're underneath. You don't see them. They're the roots of the tree. In other words, you don't talk to your students about presuppositions. Your presuppositions are just sort of who you are. They're facts about you before you ever go to campus, before you ever go to church. They're just truths underneath everything you do. And there are seven of them. Okay? We're going to focus on six because Joey is going to do one of them. So presuppositions. And then we get to the principles of the tree. And I, I realize you've got tons of questions about this. Have you already had an intro? Is this your very first thing for POM? It isn't? Y'all have already had an intro to POM? Yes. I'm so, so glad. Okay. So the trunk of the tree, the principles. Scripture. Justification. Sanctification. Glorification. The principles, you could also say this. This is the power that, can, that reaches students and equips them to serve. What do you talk to students about? That. Another way of saying this, the gospel. The life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. The trunk of the tree. So like this was so liberating to me. Like, What do I talk to students about? You are getting the principles to them. In large group, small group, one-on-one. Which means your charisma, your personality, your strengths and your weaknesses are not the goal of the ministry to make it run. That is. 
principles. And I think, I think Stone's going to nail these too. Like he's really going to go, doesn't he do principles? Yeah, he does principles. He's going to. Then we get to the big green part of the tree. Those are the goals. You have the presuppositions as the root. How does it grow? Scripture, justification, sanctification, the gospel, because you're getting the gospel, because Romans chapter 1 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is a power of salvation. And so what happens over time in large groups, small group, and one-on-one, the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, Holy Spirit, that we turned you into a cloud that is raining. The Holy Spirit rains upon the principles, and what happens? Conversion. Growth in grace. Evangelism and mission. Fellowship and service, biblical world, and life view. So what we want to achieve comes through as it's blessed by the work of the Holy Spirit, the principles being used. And here's it. What do you do? Like someone says, what do you do? What do you do? What is our what do, what do you do in your ministry? You know, you have Mr. Businessman coming to you. What do you do all day? We do scripture, justification, sanctification, glorification, large group, small group, one-on-ones. How do you do discipleship? That'll be a question you get. What is your discipleship program? This is my favorite one to answer. What is your discipleship? How do you do discipleship? I'm rolling my eyes. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm kind of getting bitter and cynical. How do you do discipleship? How do you do that? That's a great, that's a great question. We do scripture, justification, sanctification, glorification in small group, large group, and one-on-ones. I think that's profoundly biblical. What's your program? That. Over and over and over and over again. And so, like, what do you want to produce? Like, what, do you, what's your, what are your goals? We want to produce evangelism and missions. We want to have people who have a heart for Christ. We want to produce students and leaders that want to reach other students for Christ and then equip them to serve, right? That's a goal. That's a fruit. It's not a principle. It's not a presupposition. That's a fruit of the Spirit working through the principles. Are you all following me? Okay, good. Fellowship and service. We want our, we, how about this? I have, a, I have a ministry. I was just with my core group, my leadership team. I want them to have koinonia, the Greek word for fellowship. I want them so much to long for fellowship in the, in the context of a local church. You want your group to like get along. That is a fruit. It's not a, that's a goal. It's not a principle. So when you beat them up and say, like, be better friends, what you need to be doing is the principles. Does that make sense? Be better friends. How many times have I said that? You don't need friends. Like, we as reformed Christians, that's what the R means, our reformed youth movement, reformed Christians believe that the way God produces people of fellowship and service, people who have a transformed world and life, when they go out, they graduate, the decisions they make, the way that they see the whole world through this lens, people who are growing in grace, growing by the means of grace, that is the growing in prayer, growing in reading the Bible and memorizing scripture, growing in their worship in the congregation and big church, right? All those different things, they're all produced by the use of the principles, blessed by the Holy Spirit in large group, small group, one-on-ones. That just was like, when I started seeing that, was the biggest weight off my chest. Now, what that looks like in your local context is going to look totally different. Because what we have is a fixed theology. 
our doctrine of justification, sanctification, glorification doesn't change. It's true. It's true in, who's from Michigan? Anybody from Michigan? We had a group from Michigan last year. And you're from the Midwest. Anybody? Yes. Where are you from? Minnesota. Oh, gosh. It's like tropical for you down here, right? Where in Minnesota? It's awesome, man. Um, it's true in Minnesota and it's true in Mississippi. Justification is the same in Minnesota as it is in Mississippi. Okay? But the methodology, flexible. Totally different. You better be talking about some hockey in Minnesota. And you better be talking about some SEC football in, in Mississippi. Right? That's why if you take methods from one church that works in one church in one context and you try to, try to just do that there, doesn't work. Does that make sense? That's why the just add water approach, one size fits all, doesn't work. You have a flexible methodology that we'll get to. How do you get a flexible methodology through the presuppositions? And we're going to get those in just a second. Here's what I want to give you. I literally want you to catch your breath. It's going to be okay. Like, I literally want you to leave encouraged. Like, this job is so hard. It is crazy hard. It's actually, it's not hard. It's impossible. But God's called us to it. And he's chosen to work this way. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to be, you just have to be a Christian that God has called to use to bring his gospel to people in your context. And this is what he's always blessed. It's like meat and potatoes, man. It's really, really basic. And it can liberate you from start thinking about what am I supposed to do? The gospel in large groups, small groups, one-on-ones. What do you do? That's what, that's what we do here. Um, okay. Now. Now let's move to presuppositions. Any questions before I move on? I want you all to interact some with me, if, want, if you will. If, don't be afraid. I'm, a, I'm at Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt students love to challenge and ask questions. So please, I'm used to it. Presuppositions was the scariest part of the philosophy ministry to me. Because presupposition is a word that I never, ever use. It is not in my vocabulary. Now, it is a beautiful word. It is an absolutely profound word, I found out. But the word presupposition is pretty inaccessible. Are y'all with me? Presupposition. Presuppo what? Presupposition. And so I'd like to demystify presuppositions. I'd like to demystify presuppositions. We're going to take a break at three, a potty break at three. Um, okay. Presuppositions. What are presuppositions? Here's the, here's the definition. Presuppositions are understood assumptions of fact which affect our approach to ministry and the expression and style of ministry on campus. <laughs> I love you giving that definition because that's as confusing as presuppositions. Here's what it is. Here's what a presupposition is. Okay, you want the Little Rock, Arkansas version? It's stuff that's like, it's already true before you get there. It just is true. 
It's true, and it totally affects everything you do. Pore hempla. Bluegrass has presuppositions that makes bluegrass sound like bluegrass. What are some things that you notice about bluegrass music? Banjo. Gotta have a banjo. What else? What? Fiddle? Okay. What else? Ooh, you said that. Joel, you musician. Banjos, fiddles, halftime. Right? Those are set assumptions that when bluegrass dudes get together, this is what bluegrass sounds like. And the reason we know it's bluegrass is because it's just true. That's what it is. Presuppositions about Italian food. What's true about Italian food? Now, granted, I know there are different types of Italian food. Don't nerd out on me here for a second. Just in general, Italian food, American Italian food. Okay. Pasta. Tomatoes. What else? Cheese. Garlic. Okay. Those are all the ones I thought too. So here's the deal. All of those things are going to be present before you ever create a manicotti. Manicotti is a methodology. Does that make sense? So what you actually do, but the presuppositions are, this is what we work with. This is what's true. These are the ingredients. So when I think about presuppositions, the best way I think about it, what are our ingredients? There are seven presuppositions. There could be nine, there could be 12, and there could be six, but we have seven. Seven presuppositions are the presuppositions that make our manicotti, that make reformed youth movement, reformed youth, reformed youth movement. It's why we sound the way we sound. It's why we do what we do. And when I said it could be profoundly liberating to you, is you could start realizing, like, not everything's an option. Walker Percy once said that, happy is the man who knows not everything's an option. In other words, to have seven presuppositions, you are anchored and tethered in a certain place doing a certain ministry in a certain way that's then going to affect the way you communicate the principles and it's going to affect the decisions that you make when you do ministry. That's, I, I literally was trying to think what is the most basic way. It is like they are like the ingredients of something that's already true that's before you ever go do ministry. And here they are. First one. There is a providential presupposition, which is God is at work. Ingredient one, God is at work. Second, biblical and theological assumptions. So we have providential, God is at work, biblical and theological. Okay? I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to expound on each of these. The third... There are ecclesiological. How about this? We'll just say the church. So God is at work. God is at work. He's at work through his word and through his, the theology of that. God is at work. God is at work through his word. And he's at work in his church through his church. God is at work. God is at work in his word. He's at work through his church. Fourth, 
we have a presupposition about the individual. We have presupposition about the learning process. It's okay if none, if like this is not, this is confusing, I'm going to explain it to you. We have presupposition about the learning process. This one's really good too. They're all great. We have a certain way of thinking about the learning process. We have a presupposition about demographics. Demographics, learning process, individual, the church, God is at work, Bible and theology. How many is that? We only have six. I said seven. I was wrong. Presuppositions, so they're the roots of the tree. What are the roots of a tree? What do they do? Soak up nutrients. Thank you. Where are you from? Birmingham. What else? Hold it in the ground. Yeah. Suck up nutrients. Hold it in the ground. What else? Is that it? You can't see them. So it's like stability, it's nutrients, it's, under, it's underneath what you're doing. And let's just start with the very first one that actually enables me to get out of bed in the morning. Which is, I, don't, I hate that. Get out of bed in the morning, step into the cold world, get in my CRV, drive 30 minutes from Franklin to downtown Nashville or midtown Nashville and Vanderbilt and show up and talk to 19-year-olds about the gospel. God is at work. God is at work. Here's the thing. Before I ever get in my CRV, God is at work. Before I ever wake up, before I was ever born, before I ever got to campus, God was at work. The reason I give you this one is that if you don't remember any of the other ones, I want you to remember this one. Because all the other ones are, I think, I think, and I know, like, it's kind of, Les could correct me. Les is, you know, Les is like Yoda. And John, I feel so weird teaching with them here. But God is at work accomplishing his purpose in the world, and he cannot be thwarted. By anyone or anything in the accomplishment of that purpose. Before you ever said, yes, I will take the job at first pres, dot, dot, dot. That's a presupposition. It's underneath and it's true whether you get out of bed or not, it's true. Now he's privileged to use us. And actually that enables us to go for it. Because God is at work, the church is progressing through the processes of evangelism and and edification. Here's what he's saying. Because God is at work, the ministry of RYM, or the ministry of your local church, God is working specifically through reaching students for Christ and equipping them to serve. So it gets a little narrower. God's at work. 
Cheer up. He's pleased to use you. You, with all your stuff, all your undoneness, all your frailty, all your questions, all your fears, all your brokenness, all your weirdness, with your bowl of mini wheats, and there you are with your Bible. And do you ever just feel stupid doing ministry? Like sometimes I'm just walking on campus and I just like I feel like a doofus. I think it's the devil. But like, how do I keep on going? Like I'm old. I'm like I'm 43. I'm like I like their dad's age. I feel like I'm their age, but I'm, I look like their dad's age. And so I'm like walking on campus, and I'm like sitting in the fraternity house. And I'm like, hey. And I'm sort of realizing, why do I keep showing up at the SE house at 5 o'clock on Mondays every single time? It's because God is at work, and he will work, and he will work this way. Get in the river. He's invincible. That's the, here's the thing. That's something you hang your soul on. Because ministry is hard. I mean, you ever been been there where like you're, you hope this program show, you hope there's a big, like you've got an elder coming over to your large group tonight, you got, he's going, and he's that elder, and he's coming to your group, and you're like, I hope for some reason 200 kids come tonight, (laughs) just for some reason, God. You know, and that we just, that we're, that feeling of just that, that pit in your stomach that we all walk, that we, I, I do, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm crazy, but they asked me to teach, so I guess I know what I'm doing, but like, I have this pit in my stomach about ministry, are they going to show, is anyone going to show up to this Bible study? God's at work. God is at work. God is working primarily by the power of his Holy Spirit and his word. And so this is true regardless of how things appear to us. I want to say that again. This is true regardless of how things appear to us. God does not call you, this is Henry Nowen, to productivity. I know he's not reformed. Give me a break. Just a second. Henry Nowen said, God does not call you to productivity. He calls you to be fruitful and to be faithful. Faithful in what? Scripture, justification, sanctification, gospel. It's really about you kind of getting out of the way because this is his show. That's what God is at work. That's what the presupposition, the ingredient that makes RYM RYM is that we are free to work because God is at work and that there is a real spiritual battle occurring in which we are carrying out warfare with Satan and his forces. You are, do, you are on the front lines against the powers of this present evil age for the hearts and minds of these young people. You are. I know you feel like a babysitter sometimes. That's the devil. That's the same one making me feel like a loser. Because he wants us to quit. But God is pleased to work through us, but he's always at work. So here's some implications, and these are all from Les Newsom. 
Have y'all had less yet? Are you going to have less this year? Are you going to let us Newsom? Got to come back. You got to come back next year for less. Y'all ain't heard nothing yet. Um, listen to what Les says. We as youth ministers face the challenges of ministry because God is at work with confidence that God will use our feeble efforts to accomplish his will with students. Their responsibility, our responsibility, is to be faithful to the task, not to create ex nihilo. So you know what that means? Out of nothing. I've felt so much in my ministry the pressure to like be the genius with a fountain pen. Like I'm going to be the the most dynamic. I've got to be so dynamic. This presupposition means that we're allowed. Here's the thing. You're free to try and you're free to fail, which you will inevitably do. How many of us are afraid? How many of us are sitting on our hands, afraid to do anything, paralyzing your ministry, maybe even, maybe even guilty to say how much time you actually stay in the coffee shop or in your office because you're paralyzed to even try and fail? I can't even try. I'm just so. And you have so much guilt because, like, you know you're supposed to be meeting with students, but you know what's underneath that is like, I just don't. I'm afraid to even try something because I'm afraid to fail. That is super common in ministry. This presupposition, which is true whether or not you in the coffee shop want to believe it or not, it's true. So eat it. Eat this presupposition. God is at work. Go be bad. Yep. Go for it. Streak. Go talk to that student and it just absolutely be terrible. Because it will be sometimes. One of my interns, um, my female intern, she just shared this with our whole group so I can tell you all this. Um, there was a student in our ministry uh, that she was terrified of. The girl that she was terrified of was a freshman girl. And my, this girl, my intern's like 23. So she's like five years older than her. She's a freshman girl who goes to Vanderbilt, which is like an acceptance rate of like 9%. So the girl is brilliant, she is gorgeous, and she plays lacrosse. And so my intern was like, I feel ugly, dumb, and unathletic when I think about her. And the problem is, Vanderbilt has like a lot of those kind of girls. And so her first semester, she was just like, I, you know, white flag surrender. And she said that this presupposition, because this is what I kept telling her, God's at work and he wants to work through you with these girls. For some reason, he wants to use you with these girls. Go show up. Go be weak. You know what that girl, the cross girl needs? He, she needs you to be weak and real. What do you do? Does, she, my, does, my, does my intern need to be a genius? No. What does she need to do? Here's a gospel. She said the very first one-on-one, like that she ever did with her, she said, 
Because I was like giving her a pep talk. Like, come on, God's at work. It's okay. Just go be yourself. Don't try to like compete with her. She can smell that and she'll crush you. (laughs) Don't do that. Just go be yourself. Just go be stupid with her. Go feel weird and show up because God's at work through his gospel, the power, through the jar of clay that you are. And she said, like, it was, she said, like, I wish I could say it was great. It was horrible. She said, like, it lacked 30, it was 30 minutes. And she said, if I could have gotten up and run, she says, I would have. She said, I just wish, like, at 20 minutes in, I wish I could just sprint it away from this person. And she said, it was horrible. The next night she came to our large group. She's come, like, almost every single time to our large group. Why? God's at work. He wanted to work through my intern. So if you're afraid of failing, you need this presupposition. Like, you need this to be the ingredient that's true. Like, God is calling you to say, like, hey, I want you to do this. But, I, but, 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 but it's like, I know. Peter failed me three times. He was the head of the church. This is how I roll. You see? Before we move on to this one, okay, I'm really hitting this one hard. Let me just, I'll be faster on the other ones. Because God is at work, we should not seek to correct all of a person's misunderstandings or tell them everything we know immediately. Because God is at work, God uses other, not just us, he produces growth and maturity in persons over their lifetimes, like 1 Corinthians 3. You may be the only person. You may just be planting seeds. Your whole ministry may just be planting seeds. And you see absolutely not the smallest, not the smallest thing. But because we believe God's at work, because we are reformed, God is sovereignly at work. This is how he works. You just plant seeds. You may never even see one little thing. You may, be, you may show up and it look like a revival. But it's not about you and the revival, and it's not about you and the seed planting. Just keep planting, watering, being faithful. And he's going to use other people. Because sometimes students will show up to me at Vanderbilt, and they're like, oh, my gosh, my mind is being blown. I love Jesus. I want to be an REF intern. This is awesome. And I'm like, I am crushing it. I'm really gifted. (laughs) But you know why? It's because of you. I just get to harvest. That's what God, God does that. He wants us to realize it's not about us. So Paul says, like, some of you say I follow Apollo. Some of you say I follow Paul. He said, but none of just He's like, shut up. You all follow Christ. I laid one foundation. It's Christ. Someone watered. Someone planted. Someone did those other things. Someone harvested. But it's all been about Jesus from day one. It's all about Jesus. It's not about the farmer. And we're farmers. God's at work. All right. Let's go to the second one. God's at work through his word. God's at work through his word. You would be, this is, this is Les Newsom again. And I told him I'd be quoting him a lot. You would be hard-pressed to find a more theologically self-aware ministry than I'll say it's for RUF, but I'll say for RYM. We put the word reformed in our name. 
In so doing, we state outright who we are, where we're coming from, to the watching world. In other words, we do not assume a posture of neutral or generic Christianity. Rather, we seat ourselves firmly within an historical tradition with creeds, texts, spiritual fathers that help root our ministry in a biblical expression. There are few presuppositions that cut across the current grain of ministry thinking among youth ministry today. Like, the fact that you say, to a postmodern mind, the fact that you say that we are reformed is very countercultural. Because vague Christianity, vague spirituality is so in, right? And to say that you are reformed, here's what it means. It means that your lasagna is going to taste a certain way. It's not going to, it means you're making a certain product. It means that your music is going to sound a certain way because you are reformed. Um, We carry out our teaching and ministry from a specific theological perspective. Sometimes referred referred to as the reformed faith. And so people ask me, what does reformed mean? You know, Ligon Duncan gives a great definition of that. There's a lot of different definitions. One is, we believe that God saves sinners. God is sovereign because he's at work. We believe in the doctrine of election, divine grace, grace alone, right? Not because of works. God works through us, through the church and the ministry of the word to save People who are totally depraved and cannot save themselves. We're not just sort of bad off. We are dead. We're not just crying out. We just need a little help. We are at the bottom of the ocean, and God has to rescue us. We are dead, spiritually dead. The uh, effects of sin have affected us. The noetic, the ripple effects of sin have affected our mind. It affected our emotions. It affected us spiritually. We're dead. That is what reformed means. You, and I'm guessing you're okay with that if you're at Reformed Movement. It's okay if you're not. That's totally okay if you're not. Then we need to like, then there's some other stuff we can talk about. But it is a robust statement to believe that we, like when we say we have a theological presupposition that we're reformed, it means that we have a very Christ-centered, radically grace-centered, view of evangelism and discipleship. Um, It means that we don't uh, do coercive or manipulative evangelism. It means that we do call people to believe in Jesus Christ, but we uh, we do not force them into the kingdom or force to close the deal with them in a certain way. So it affects how we do evangelism, how we reach students for Christ is affected by the presupposition, the ingredient, of Reformed theology. We have theological presuppositions. Um, and, and here, let me give you all a little piece of like encouragement, like, or something that's really helpful. Um, go read the classic Reformed creeds and confessions. Not just the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is excellent and extremely accurate and comprehensive. Maybe the finest articulation of Calvinism, right? 
of systematic Calvinism. Go read the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg, H-E-I-D-L-E-B-E-R-G, Heidelberg Catechism. It's the one where it says, what's your only comfort in life and death? That one will preach all day long that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood fully paid for all my sins. By the Father, I'm so protected by the will of my Father that not a hair can fall from my head. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit, He wholeheartedly enables me to live for Him. You know, being reformed is awesome. (laughs) Now, if reform makes you arrogant, you're not reformed. You're a jerk. If reformed makes you like prideful and like you want to use it, as, as Spurgeon said, if you want to use Calvinism to sort of stick in the barbs of your Arminian friends, a barb in the ribs, right, to stick them, you're not reformed. You're arrogant. Reform should make you profoundly humble. It should make you smell like Jesus. You should be saturated in the gospel of Jesus. It should make you so reliant upon the work of the Holy Spirit. John Calvin was the theologian of the Holy Spirit, not the five points of Calvinism. The dude was dead for like 100 years when they came up with the five points of Calvinism. If the five points of Calvinism is all you have in this presupposition, go read some more about Reformed. If TULIP is it, that's not it. It's not comprehensive. That's like saying, that's like giving me 10 songs and saying, this is the Beatles. From the Beatles. How dare you, right? So we have reformed convictions, theological convictions. And here's what we think. And this is a bold statement. I'm saying it reform, I'm saying it reform youth movement. What we believe about reformed theology, we believe it is the most faithful system to scripture. This is what we believe. What reform was born out of was the doctrine or the belief, the creed of sola scriptura, the sola, scripture alone. It was a rediscovery of scripture. What brought Luther, what he said, opened up the gates of paradise when he read the book of Romans and Galatians and he was liberated forever, which really changed the world in a lot of ways, was a rediscovery of scripture. And so what we believe is, our presupposition is we have theological convictions because we believe they are faithful to the teaching of scripture. And so what do we believe about Scripture? We believe that it is verbally and completely inspired by God and inerrant and infallible in all that it asserts to be true. It is our only rule of faith and practice. Not only that we teach, not only what we teach, but also what we do and why we do and how we do it are firmly based on the Scriptures. So that's why you'll find the scriptures. This is why I think they put them in all three. We find the scriptures in the dirt underneath it all. You find the scriptures in the presupposition, right, of Bible and theology, right? And then you find it in the principle. I think the point is this. It's all about the Bible. It's the word. So some implications of that before we go, before we take a break. Our teaching, our preaching in all avenues of ministry must be clearly, openly, and self-consciously biblical and reformed. 
Now, the way we communicate reformed has to be contextualized to our people. In other words, we have to translate reformed for them. If not, then you're calling them, then they, here's the thing. If you lead with the idea or the word reformed, you've got to unpack it. And the way I do it, the way we do it, is we make it radically Christ-centered. And so what happens is it is so Jesus-centered, so grace-centered, that what happens is people come into this and they say, what is this? This is reformed. This is what it means to be reformed. You've got to be careful, and that's some of that's methodology, on how you present that. But you are unabashedly Christ-centered, reformed, Bible-based. We should not couch our teaching and activities in specifically denominational or sectarian terminology, especially when dealing with students from different denominational backgrounds. So here's what that means. Let's be big tent reformed. Or I remember hearing a professor say, instead of being TR, which means like truly or totally reformed, I don't remember which one that is, let's be WR. Didn't catch on. Winsomely reformed. In other words, let's lead with our humility, our Christ-centeredness, our reliance upon Scripture, our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what the Reformers would be happy about. Not that we have deified or given them sainthood. So if you have a screensaver with like the Calvin and those guys on there, not hating on you, but like, seriously? Like, here's my point. You need to think about why you're, are you leading people to Christ? You're leading people to Calvin. And Calvin would be like, Dude, don't lead people to me. Don't get people to ask Calvin into their hearts. It's Christ, right? Okay. Let's take a break. Don't take a, a bathroom break. We are on, we're doing presuppositions, the ingredients to ministry. Um, the third, so the, the first presupposition is yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the second presupposition is Bible and theology. Good, good, Bible and theology. The third presupposition we're going to look at is the individual. We have assumptions. Those are our assumptions that we have because we're RYM about students and staff. Um, okay, let me get to my notes here. So, we treat individuals as unique people in God's world. That's a presupposition. Like, why would that be a presupposition? It's a presupposition because the way, here's the thing, large group, small group, one-on-ones. We need to have prior assumptions about what an individual is before we ever talk to one. If not, they'll kind of freak you out. It just kind of freak you out. And, quite frankly, if you don't have the right presuppositions about an individual, 
You can really abuse people, not mean to. You can really hurt people. You can really mistreat them. Um, they have, human beings have different gifts and different personal histories. This is all less Newsom. We, we resist the attempts to, quote, put people in a box. This is one of the reasons I love being RUF, RYM. We refuse to put people in a box that fails to adequately appreciate how they might be different from the other students around them. Whenever a campus minister, whenever, or a youth pastor, whenever we encounter a student, we do so being aware of the great variety of God's work in and through that person before we ever met them. So what makes up an individual is, are, is, I don't know which one you choose, their environment that they're currently in, the relationships that they have, their name, their personality. This is when you can like do your Enneagram stuff. You can guess which one I am. No, I'm a four. I know you're shocked. Education, their educational background, where are they? Their life, their, their likes and dislikes, their strengths, their weaknesses, their needs, their problems. How does it affect our manner of ministry? How does this presupposition, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of give you an application of it in a second. We respect the nuances of personal history located in every student that we meet. We resist finding fail-safe methods that always work for students, since so often those tools fail to adequately account for what that student needs. Now, the reason, one of the reasons this is super important for youth ministry, I was in youth ministry a long, like a while back, when I first was ordained in ministry. Um, and youth ministry seemed to have the most, for whatever reason, at that time, I was Trina, the most, here's how you do youthministry.com. Like it had the most formulaic, programmatic ministry in a box, just add water, Thing I could ever imagine. Like, there's, I think it's, it must be big business. Like, here's a video series, right? No, no wrong video series. But like, you need this video series. And this is our presupposition of the individual. It's like, maybe I do, maybe I don't. Maybe this won't work for my students. Maybe this won't work for this student. We are to love individual students individually. Individual students, individual. Now, I'm not talking about the snowflake culture. I've got some snowflakes, right? Snowflake that like, oh, I'm so, I'm just the most precious thing ever, and they have a child's in their home. I'm not talking about fostering that. 
It's an overcorrection. But what I am saying is that Jesus loved individuals individually, each and every single one of them. He also loved them corporately. We're going to talk about that. But Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 35, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, the woman with the bleeding. She had the bleeding and she had it for 12 years. For 12 years. And she had spent all her money and all the doctors made her worse. So she was poor. And she had this problem that meant she was ceremonially unclean because she was a Jewish woman. So everywhere she went, she would have to say, be 30 feet away from everyone and say, unclean, unclean. You think that's toxic shit? For 12 12 years, unclean, so that they wouldn't touch her. Then one day Jesus is walking through town, and there's this big crowd pressing in around, and the lady scurries up like a little kitty, like a little kitty cat, behind him. She grabs the hem of his garment, and she's immediately healed, and she takes off back into the shadows, healed. And Jesus stops. He stops, and by the way, I need to add this, he's on his way to go heal the daughter of Jairus. Jairus was the really important guy, one of the story. He was the head of the synagogue, which would have been really good for business and good for PR for him to heal the daughter of this guy. Because the head of the synagogue had serious juice in that culture, okay? So Jesus stops, and he says, who touched me? The disciples are like, what the what? Everyone's touching you. They're always confused by Jesus, right? What do you mean to touch you? He's like, so he stops, and here's what he's doing. Oh, what you think about this? He's walking around, and he's saying, who touched me? Somebody touched my garment, and something happened to you. Where are you? Where are you? In the meantime, Jairus' daughter dies. Where are you? That was a, even me doing it for like 10 seconds is kind of a long time. Where, where are you? I think if you did it for one minute. He did it for five minutes. He didn't leave. The disciples are like, good gravy. <laughs> where are you? And then finally she comes out. 12 years she's been in the shadows. She scurries out. And she just falls down at his feet. Jesus looks at her and says, Daughter. Wow. That one woman was the center of his world in that moment. Every one of your students mattered to Jesus. You know this reach you up from? Feeling like this hour and a half coffee that you had with this really awkward person is a waste of time. He wants to call your student's daughter through you. Because they live in the shadows too. That's the kingdom. That's, that's it. Daughter. Hey. He wanted, he wanted to go back to call her daughter. He didn't have to. He could have done. Power was just like flying out of his shoes. That's a bad dude, first of all. 
that can heal someone. She just touched him. He goes, whoa. He He could have just kept coming on like, enjoy that. (laughs) He could have done that, right? But he didn't. And here's what. The value and the presupposition of the individual is that presupposition of Jesus had the presupposition of the individual. He has the presupposition, presupposition of the individual. You. You. And so you sit, you nerve out on people's story. I think that we need to become real big fans of humans. Fans. Listen to them talk about Fortnite. Find out what makes your students light up like a Christmas tree. What makes your students shimmer and shine? What makes them, what makes them come alive? And then what are those places in, your, in their story, the places of great hurt? They carry these little dark places. They don't know what to do with them. And the vast majority of them can't talk to their parents about any of those things. They don't know what to do with them, and they don't have the words to give to them. You give them the words for their hurt. That's the presupposition of the individual. It also means that we can speak clearly and boldly with our, with our principles, with our gospel, into people's hurt. But it means that you, that you and I need to become really good listeners. We have the presupposition of the individual. It means that you you need to listen to their story. And they can tell when you check out. They just can't. They're used to people checking out. So you you may be the only person that listens to them all month. Well, Richie, I've got to do all these other things. You know what you need to do? You need to call them daughter. Jesus stopped and Jairus' daughter died for it. So here's the thing. Our priorities become radically changed when they become the, the priorities of Jesus. And they look dumb to the world. Join the club. It's stupid, like a waste of time. Are you going to know what that's doing? That's not a leader. You've got to hang out with the leaders too. You've got to hang out with the cool kids. You've got to. Hang out with the cool kids. They're, they, they're hurt too. By the way, they're not even allowed to be hurt. They're just allowed to be perfect. And those are the students I get. And they want to jump off parking decks. So you got to meet with all of them and listen to them. That's your job. The value of the individual. See a presupposition? Do you see why that's your ingredient? See how that's so important? See why that's liberating? That's liberating. Presupposition of the individual. And they're all so different. Do you ever, before we go on to the next one, do you ever think to yourself like, you kind of been doing this a while, and you kind of think like, "I got this." Right. I, I kind of, I do that. Like someone's sitting there telling me, "I was like, mm, I know what's wrong." Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're spinning right. I, mean, I know how to help you right now. And I'll be, you're so wrong. <laughs> you ever told a student like, "Yes, well, I think this is happening." Like that's not the way I feel at all. And I was like, <clears throat> "Excuse me." No, no, no. That's that's wrong. You're wrong. And it's because I'm not listening. I'm thinking about how good I am at ministry. The presupposition of the individual is going like. You matter to Jesus because you're on the planet. No matter how messed up you are. And I want to hear your story. I want to sit with you. That If you do that as a leader of your ministry, nothing will affect the culture of your ministry 
more than you just being a nice person who listens to people. That'll affect the culture of the ministry. You want to shape your ministry? That's it. You'll create leaders that are all about. Um, here's the fourth one. The learning process. The learning process. We have a certain understanding of the learning presupposition before you ever step on to your church, before you ever do ministry that day. We have a presupposition about the learning process. Here's what that means. Um, We have a certain understanding of what it means to learn. Its implications for the nature of saving faith, the elements of the process, how it is implemented, the implication of those things for the operation of our ministry, the roles of those involved with it. We have a correct understanding of this learning. A correct understanding of this learning process is vital to implementation of strategies and methods. Most conducive to its occurrence, as well as the avoidance of certain misconceptions and pitfalls common to ministry. And so here's here's one example of this. The learning process um, is gradual. Like, fundamentally, we know the learning process is slow. It's slow. You can want it to be fast. You can want it to microwave it. It's still going to be slow. You're just going to be really discouraged, and your kids are going to just want to eat donuts and leave. They're not. In other words, you want it to be faster. You want your students. Think about how we abuse students. We want our students to be changed more. And then what are some things that we do? Confession time. What are some things we do to make them act right? What are some things we do? Talk too much. What else? Try like quick methods and things like that. But what we do, what our YM does, is that we have a presupposition about how we go about the learning process is God uses his word and his gospel by the power of the spirit to bring about gradual change in his time. My job is to present the gospel to people in large groups, small groups, one-on-ones. And, and, and how the growth happens? His business. My job is to be faithful to the task of being a vehicle, a vessel of this gospel. Just show up. Just keep showing up. Two people, show up. One person, show up. hundred people, show up. And it's a slow process. This is, this is really, really liberating. It's a gradual, slow process. And so what that means is it allows you to kind of get in step with the Spirit and the pace of the Spirit. And you have to start looking at how does, so how does Jesus talk about growth, a vine and a branch? How does the New Testament talk about the fruit, fruit of the spirit? Fruit doesn't, like I want Insta fruit. I want Insta fruit in my own life, right? Insta fruit, gospel, I believe, I believe, I totally understand this. I'm totally happy. I have peace. I have peace right now. 
but it is a gradual process that comes through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit over time. So here's the thing. It allows you to be patient with your students, and your job is to keep showing up with them, large group, small group, one-on-one. That's a presupposition. Why are you so patient with your students? This is how we, because we have a certain presupposition about the learning process. It's gradual, slow. It's God's business. I'm a farmer. You ever been around farmers? You ever been around farmers? They're told, even though like some of them, like it's expensive to run the pivot, you know, the things that walk there. One of my good friends is a cotton farmer. It's expensive to run that thing. You know, to, to, so they don't want to do that very much. They want it to rain, but not rain too much. If it rains too much. And so they're kind of neurotic because they're totally dependent on God to make the cross grow. That's what it's like to be in ministry. Throw it out. God, God waters and hope it grows. Okay. Here's the second thing that we need to say about the learning process before we move on. It's what we call T-D-O-E-E. So in RUF, in R-Y-M, we talk about the learning process. We have this, this acronym. I think it's called... T for teaching. We teach content. We actually teach content. So this is where we teach theology. This is where we bring our catechisms. This is where we do our Bible studies. Theology and doctrine is essential to what we do. It's essential. It's not, it's not sufficient for complete transformation. There's a lot of other things when we talk about the learning process. Not just head knowledge. Just head knowledge is, is what makes people mean or arrogant or disconnected, right? But head knowledge that, that affects their whole life. But we teach content. Ideas have consequences. We want to interact with students on the basis of those ideas. And so when we talk about the learning process, it means that you actually have a Bible study where you go through Philippians or the attributes of God. You actually, so we teach the Bible and we actually teach content to people. That's something super, super duper important. So when people say like, why do you do theology? Your parents say, it's like so boring. It's like, because then we have, this is what we do. This is what, this is what we do. We teach stuff. We teach truth to people. So teaching is the first one. The D is demonstrating. This aspect of learning involves giving students enough access to the experiences of your life that they observe what gospel living looks like. This is what Paul exhorts the Corinthians to say, be imitators, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Of course, we do not mean by this a pietist sort of modeling but a chance to see all the struggle, conflict, victory, arguments, love, and even dirty diapers that a real Christian home has. Here's what it is. Show them what it looks like to like be a Christian. Let me demystify this one. It means just asking them to come with you. Just come with me. Where are you going? I'm gonna start, okay, come with me. What are you doing? Like, it means having them in your home and watching, like, your daughter, like, roll her eyes at you and watching you, like, have to struggle and walk through that. Right? People need to, you need to demonstrate your theology, your content. 
Demonstrate what it looks like to be okay with not being okay. Demonstrate to be someone who has not arrived, but also you can demonstrate what it means, what it looks like, even most of the time unbeknownst to you, to actually have maturity. You actually have grown. And they'll, they'll notice it when you're not even trying to do it most of the time. When you're trying to do it, chalk that up to pride, right? But like, when they actually see you react to someone or how you treat someone as being a work of the Spirit, demonstrate that. But the only way you can do that is you bring them with you. You hang out with people. They see you doing it. So like one of the ways I'll do that is I'll, I'll bring my intern into me having a one-on-one. I'll ask an intern. Like this last week, I asked a guy, I was like, hey, do you mind if I bring Houston, one of my interns, in on this? This guy, just his dad committed suicide. And so we all know him. And I said, do you mind if I bring Houston in? And I just, he watches me kind of be with, he watches me be with this guy. He just kind of watches me talk to him and pray with him. And so Houston, my intern, sort of watches me like, oh, so I can do that. I watch Richie do that. Demonstrate Demonstrate what it looks like to be a Christian. That's what that's an assumption we have about the learning process. Here's the O. Observing. This aspect of learning involves you being in the life of students in order to see their way of living. This means that you're watching them, not in a creepy way, but you are following them on Instagram. You, you are watching their life. You're like in good conscience, as Les says, you are, you do consume their pop culture and hang out in their spots. You become a student of students. That's what it means to observe. You become a student of them. You watch them. I mean, Paul was crazy good at this, y'all. Like, you know, when he was in Athens, you know, the Areopagus, he's quoting their poets, he's using their language. He's right there with them. And he says this. It's so amazing. Go read it, Acts 17. It's so amazing. He's like, he's quoting their poets. He's got to have them eaten out of his hand. Like, oh, quote your poets. He was one of your poets said, in him we live and move and have we, our being. He talks about, you have this, un, this unknown God. And then he says this. Um, so he's been a student of them. He's observed them. And he says this to them. God has commanded that you believe in Jesus Christ. The days of ignorance have passed away. God has commanded you to believe in Jesus Christ. And he's validated this by raising him from the dead. <laughs> and what he's done is he's observed, he's observed, he's observed, boom. But he's done it because he's observed. You become a student of students. You don't wait, here's the point, you don't wait for students to get to you and unpack you. You figure out how to speak in their language. That's an assumption, presupposition. What is the first E? T-O-E-E, evaluating. That's easy. It's a feedback loop. There's a counselor who once said, there are two things that children need to grow up emotionally healthy. One, I am, am I safe? Two questions. And then two, am I doing okay? That's, that's what it means, the learning process. Like you're listening to them going, good job. Which is the final E, encouraging. Encourage, 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 encourage. You all think about this. I don't know if you struggle with this. I do. Sometimes I think that they kind of already know it or they don't want to hear it from me. But like, to, to notice something about something a student's doing and they'll look at it and go like, I don't love that about you. It's so awesome. If you kind of feel like that's cheesy or you feel like vulnerable about that, go, go for it. Try it. 
Like, not just on their Instagram thing, like, you're so beautiful, I want to die. But like, because that's what they hear. They know, here's the thing, they know, my 17-year-old knows that it means nothing. She still needs it, she knows that it means nothing. But like, for a real human to really use their, their brain, their heart, and with their mouth, say like, I love being with you. I love how you did that. I love how you say that. I love the way you talk. I love how you do the like. Yo, don't you? That's what Jesus was like. He did stuff like that. That that's the learning experience. T D O E. You're you're teaching content to people. You're demonstrating it. You're bringing them into your life. They're you're observing them. You're evaluating them, and then you're encouraging them over and over again. So here's the thing. The reason T D O E is so great is that's kind of what you're doing Monday to. Sunday, Monday, Friday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's it. And it's a gradual process. And before we move on, you're going through the learning process too. We haven't arrived. Part of the presuppositions are to give you a break on yourself. You're not like a Navy SEAL Christian. It's not what this is about. You're in the learning process too. It's gradual and inevitable for you, too. All right. Here's the final one, I think. <laughs> yeah, because, because uh, Joey's going to do the church. The final one is demographical, and it's kind of self-explanatory. We have assumptions about the environment of ministry. Our ability to minister is affected by demographic factors. So the presupposition of, of demographic is the personality of our neighborhood, our town, the types of students that come to your youth group, the type of students and the type of families that are at your church. Something that campus ministers do, that good ministers do, youth ministers do, is they become students of their place. They know the flavor, the mojo, the vibe of their place. They kind of know what it's like. What are these students like? So someone comes to you and say, what are the students like that go to this church? What are the students like that, go to, that live in this neighborhood? What are the students like, generally speaking, that are in this town? And this you're a bit like from concentric circles, like you kind of know what they're like. And so here's the thing, that affects how you bring the principles to them. With your presuppositions, so what works in Minnesota may not work in Mississippi because we have a flexible methodology. So now you're making decisions about your ministry, actual tangible decisions. How many of you have been in one church and then you moved to another church? Raise your hand. Oh, so a lot of us, yeah. So you've done one thing and you moved to another. Now, there's some crossover, but how, have you experienced what really worked at that one church? Just was a big bomb at the other church. You've done that? Raise your hand. Anyone? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, some of us. So you've gone for it. You're like, why didn't this work? It's the presupposition of demographics. The reason we have a flexible methodology, the reason we don't have a one-size-fits-all, is because we realize that demographics actually matter, which is what contextualization is. We, we contextualize the ministry. We contextualize the gospel. Our theology is fixed. What we believe about justification is true in Minnesota as it is in Mississippi. But then how we communicate that has to be radically different. That's flexible. 
That's why we don't do our ministries in Latin anymore. Thank you, Reformation. Medieval Roman Catholicism, the services were in Latin, and the peasants did not speak Latin. They did not read. And so when Luther translated the Bible into German, it changed Europe. And so we are translating it based on our demographics. You become a really good student of your place. You become a, you become a student. You realize that demographics matter. And if you don't realize demographics matter, you will not. Here's the thing. You will not be fruitful in the long term. You won't. Or you'll have a very isolated, insular ministry for the people that speak your little one little language. It's all like, I liken it to like civil war reenacting. Um, I apologize if there are civil war reenactors in here. This is not, I'm not knocking civil war reenactors. Um, but I think a lot of our churches, and I'll close with this, I think a lot of our churches, a lot of our ministries in reform circles are missing the culture because we are fighting old battles and we're obsessed with things that, that no longer matter or we are fighting things or about things and it's kind of like watching someone reenact, you know, a civil war battle next to like an eight-lane superhighway. Fix your bayonets, right? And they go like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the culture, right? We're like, we are not going to kowtow to the culture. And I was like, okay, rock on, man. I think that's what a lot of our ministries do. When we talk about the presupposition of demographics, I'm still hoping, holding my musket, yes. But when we talk about the demographic, we talk about the presupposition of demographics, it means that you do everything to translate the timeless gospel into your culture. You become a student of the culture. You do not try to get them into 1950s, 1960s, 1860s or 1560s culture. You do not expect them to understand unless you translate what Jonathan Edwards means. Jonathan Edwards is really important for your students to understand who he is and what he did. But you better, you better translate it for him. That's a, that's a bold statement. You better translate Jonathan Edwards. You, you, better, you better make it understandable to them in their context because of the demographic. That's the, that's the presentation demographic. I'll stop there. Questions, comments about any of this stuff. Don't be afraid. Yes. Yeah. Student. Like you're looking at them, you evaluate yourself too. Yeah, <laughs> that's part of it. But I would say primarily we're talking about TDOE. We're looking at them like a real practical one would be like, hey, you have a student leader that's leading the Bible study. And you kind of train them on how to do that. And you take them through it. And you say like, you know, That'll work on this little, this one little point. Like I noticed that you did this, like speaking into that, you evaluate them. That's a really practical one that, but on a broader kind of sanctification thing, you're realizing that God's at work in their life through his word, through his church, to this individual, right? And you start realizing, because you know their story, you start going like, you know, I just see a lot of pride in your life. That's evaluation. Now, I see, like, you're just really judgmental on the other students. This is especially critical for your leaders. And then you encourage the heck out of them. Not token encouragement, 
but it's evaluation. That's the learning process. You're actually looking at it. You're looking at the fruit, and you're looking at it, and you're speaking like heart. Now, y'all, that's scary, but you get better at it. When you start realizing that you're not the center of your ministry, but the presuppositions and the principles of you're doing the POM, it's not about you and what they think about you. It's about their relationship with Jesus, and you're just dusting for the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit in their life, helping them see what the Spirit's doing. That's evaluation. That answer your question? Other questions? Great question. Comments? Was this encouraging? How was it encouraging? Tell me. Practically. How does it encourage you right now? Back from a 14 year old. 
Like, I have a 14-year-old now, and he's like, Hurr. he doesn't use words anymore, he just grunts. Yeah. So, to that point, I love working with university students, that's a big part of my story, PA, all these principles were, um, they were vivid for me when there was that feedback. So, I work with middle school students a lot now, and can anyone in the room help me think about um, understanding the individual, gradual learning process for like middle school, like I just, Someone help Jerry Sanders out here? How do you get, like, I think you're, this, I think this is what he's saying. Like, I'm working with middle school students, and I'm not getting any feedback, and I'm look, like, most time, I mean, I've spoken at RYM middle school, like, a bunch. And so they, like, and they've been in the sun all day, and they're like, and I'm just spazzing out on stage. Like, I come back every single time. It's like, that was terrible. I'm horrible. I'm awful. And then I found out, like, I was converted. And what he's saying is, how do you keep showing up when you're not getting any kind of feedback? I would say middle school boys, that's the demographic I work with mostly. They're highly insecure, so having them in a group of, like, their friends, they're not going to be real with you because they don't want to embarrass themselves. So getting them in those moments, I had um, a student and I was able to pull him aside and we did like a spiritual gifts test with them. And I was able to talk to him about how he could better utilize his gifts. And that was like the best conversation I've ever had with a junior high boy. Like because, it was one-on-one? Yeah. Okay. And that's a little bit harder to do nowadays just because of yeah. the state of the world. Um, but if you can like get them to sit still for even 15 minutes and have like that really real conversation with them. Like, I see this in you, you're really good at this. How do you think you can utilize that? I think you'll learn more about them than having those smaller conversations. That's really good. Other things, yeah. Sorry, being faithful to like the scriptures and 
like what we're called to is like proclaiming the gospel, teaching them like the ways of Christ. Like the Holy Spirit is going to do their work, and all you can do is like, all right, God, you got it. Like sometimes middle school boys are just going <coughs> to pick their nose and not pay attention to you, and that's just because they're 12 to 14 and their brain's not fully developed. Yeah. They don't have fully formed prefrontal cortexes until they're 25. Yes? Yeah, um, I think one of the biggest sources of encouragement for me with my, like my middle school boys was their parents. Like I, I, was, I had a conversation with my mom this past Sunday, and I was like, yeah, I'm really glad that, that you're here. Um, his older brother doesn't really come because we didn't have as much reason but he started coming because he and I have built a relationship. I was like, yeah, I'm really glad that he's just, he's getting to come, he's getting to spend time with these other kids. And he was like, well, he's learning a lot, too. He's gotten a lot from me. And I was like, I, I didn't think so, because that's it. That kid just, like, has literally sat upside down half the time. So, like, you know, the parents, they're, they're around them so much more than we are, and they see their behavior changing, and they see the things that they learn, too. Like, that was a that was a good resource for me to hear from that mom. Mm-hmm. Y'all, can I close with this? Can I close? Okay. This is the most encouraging thing I've ever, I've ever heard in ministry. I'm serious. So, and it's from Jesus. Um, the seven, he sends out the 72 in Luke's gospel. I think it's Luke 10 or 11. Is it 10? He sends out the who is? Sandy's oh, so I'm not going to step on Sandy's toes. <laughs> it's okay. Please share. Okay. So, so Sandy, no. Jesus sends out the 72. And he commissioned, they've been commissioned by Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Like you, you can't get him any like, better than that. Go out and preach the gospel. And they go out and they do the most... There were fishermen and tax collectors and like just dudes like months before. Right? And now they're going out and demons are shrieking. They're like, in the name of Jesus, get out. They're like leaving. They're like, did you just... And like crazy things. Like they're stamping and stomping and destroying the kingdom of darkness right there in front of them. People are being converted. People are being healed. The blind are seeing all these crazy ministry. And they come out to Jesus. And they're so excited, obviously, to tell him what happened. They're like, the, the spirits submit to us. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. That's a weird thing to say. Don't rejoice in that. What do you mean don't rejoice in that? Rejoice, that is what you're practicing rejoicing in, what you're finding your identity in, and what is actually delighting your soul, what you're feeding yourself every single day. Rejoicing, what what lights you up inside. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Past, perfect, tense have been written, are written right now, done by me forever. And so y'all, what's liberating me the most in ministry is to know that God does not love me because I am in ministry. 
He loves me just because he does. And he uses me in ministry. But that is super important that I separate those two. And, and, and I have to separate those two like I have to weed, weed the garden. Because those would get really confused. Because I'm not getting feedback and I'm getting discouragement and this is happening and life is hard to come back to this place that eternity will not erase that because it's been written by the hand of God. That's what I'm leaving with. And if anything, the presuppositions root you in that reality. It's God's work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this group. I pray that your word, your gospel, the Holy Spirit, you will just, just so fill them and lavish the love of God, the Father, and the Son upon them, deep inside of them. Fill them with the joy that their names have been written in heaven and the freedom that that brings so that they may go love students, not out of a premise of fear, but out of a premise of being your beloved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll see you.